This presentation is from UX Australia 2022, day one. All right. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, so great to be here. I mean, it'd be better to be there. But thank you so much for having me at another UX Australia, one of my favorite conferences. So I'm going to talk about how enterprise software can be saved from uh, pff, chaos, I guess you could say with uh, UX research and service design. And so I have a lot to talk about, so I am going to jump right in. <clears throat> but before I do, very quickly, let me tell you uh, a little bit about myself. My name is Jen Blatz, and I am a lead UX researcher and designer. I'm currently a researcher at Rocket Mortgage, which is the largest mortgage lender in the United States. I'm also one of the co-founders of a meetup group called UX Research and Strategy. You can find me and you can find the group on LinkedIn. I would love to connect. So please get your little phones out and start connecting with me in the group. And I do have one little warning. I have a lot of doggos in my presentation tonight. So I hope you like peppers because there's going to be quite a few of those. All right, let's get back to the topic at hand. So you know what, let's start with the basics. What is enterprise software? And no, it's not this spaceship for all you Star Trek fans out there. Uh, enterprise software is used to satisfy the needs of an organization or a company rather than individual users. So sometimes enterprise can be referred to business to business applications. Maybe you've heard that. And enterprise software is getting better in design and usability. <clears throat> But sometimes I think of it as the not so sexy side of software development. And what makes enterprise systems interesting is they are, like I said, super sexy or delightful. And they're there to help you get a job done. And so think of it, people tend to be in them for long periods of time. So someone, let's think about somebody who's like managing content for a website. They might be in that management system all day long. And also this software is often old and feels kind of dated and it can be tied to legacy systems, which makes it difficult to upgrade. The tough part about enterprise software is that its users often don't, much ha have, don't have say in the purchase of these products. So the person who bought the software is likely not to be the one using it on a daily basis. They might be in procurement or technology. So as users, sometimes our hands are tied when we have to use enterprise software. And this type of software, like I said, rarely gets UX love. Simply put, the companies need these solutions. And the great user experience that humans desire it often gets neglected in enterprise. So some examples of enterprise that maybe you're familiar with are Jira, Salesforce, SAP, WordPress, ServiceNow, and they run systems like human resources, payroll, marketing, project management, accounting, health records, supply chain management, all types of industries and solutions. Okay, so now that we know some examples, let me share some enterprise software that I was working on that I was actually trying to bring this application I'm going to show you into this century. But I have to warn you, 
this might hurt your eyes to see this. So you've been warned. Ooh, so here's some of the lovely enterprise software that I was working on as a designer and a researcher at a security company. Mm, don't you just love the way that this looks? Yeah, it looks like it was created in 1993. So here's another example of that software that I was looking on. And this was used by a security operations center by analysts who are creating or reviewing security tickets or incidents. And the company I work for monitored internet traffic for another corporation. So they look for things like malware and viruses on another corporation's system. Whew, just imagine looking at these small fonts and this data design for hours on end. It's pretty brutal. Oh, and see all those buttons in the top left, those gray boxes at the top? Well, through my research, I found out that only half of those buttons are ever used. And most that are usable, most of the time they're not usable in the context of the page that they're on. Mm, this is a classic example of just adding more items without removing items that are not useful or required anymore. I'm sure that you've seen that a time or two in some of the stuff you've been working on. Okay, that's the last time I'm gonna scare you with that dated enterprise software. And so I here's the funny thing. I haven't been working at that company for a few years. And I just talked to one of my former colleagues about a month or two ago and asked him if they're still working in that same design. Mm, guess what? <laughs> they are still working in that. Haven't updated it one bit. So that brings us to the other half of this talk, and that's service design. And hopefully some of you here are familiar with the idea of service design, or maybe you're, you are doing it in your organization. So for those who might be a little bit new to, the, to you, uh, service design is a way of organizing resources, people, and processes in order to improve the employee's experience and then indirectly the customer's experience. To me, it's taking a deep look at the experience your user or your customer's going through each step of the way, and then determining if there are ways to improve that even more. So let's look at some similarities between service design and enterprise software. Like I said, service design is a way of organizing business process to improve an employee's experience, and then indirectly a customer's experience. And enterprise also has that secondary user. You're helping the business needs, not necessarily the individual using the enterprise software. And enterprise software is often purchased by someone else holding the wallet or the budget rather than the person who's actually using it. So here I think is the interesting parallel between service design and enterprise software. They both indirectly affect another person or another aspect, like be that the company or the customer. So how these are related is that service design takes a deep dive and examines the user experience. And in the case I'm gonna go through today, applying service design research methods, I'm gonna talk about how I was trying to discover how to make an employee's work process better and improving that could in turn improve the customer's experience. So to bring these two together, 
you as a UX professional out there in the audience can improve enterprise software by applying service design principles. And so how is that done? Well, one way is completing a service design blueprint. And hopefully maybe some of you have seen this template or this layout before. This format of a service design blueprint was developed by the folks at Adaptive Path. The rows going across horizontally are the swim lanes that a UX professional can examine a customer's interaction with the product or service. And the columns are the deep dive into that process. So the yellow at the top, you record each step of the journey, and then you do a deep examination by going through the columns underneath. And I just wanted to get you familiar with the idea of a service design blueprint. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about this later on. So now let's talk about the problem I was trying to solve for our research initiative. Now, again, this is for a security operations center. I'll call it SOC, S-O-C, SOC for short. And this is a company who monitors a customer's internet traffic for other customers. So um, for example, let's say it's Starbucks and Starbucks is our client. We monitor Starbucks internet traffic in their environment to make sure nothing's wrong. Like no one's downloading an illegal BitTorrent or viruses haven't compromised their system. So as part of the service at the SOC, Security Operations Center, offered to these companies, we also provided monthly or quarterly reports. So the company could have a nice summary of what was going on in their system. These reports were like a Word document basically, and they were saved as a PDF and sent over electronically. And so how the problem to solve came on my radar was the SOC wanted to automate the building of these reports. Well, in order to do that, I have to understand the process of how these reports are actually built. And after I started to do a little bit of research, the SOC was up for a big surprise on how difficult it was actually going to be to automate these reports. And that's what I'm going to go through today. Okay, so what was wrong with these reports? Well, it's a very manual process to make these reports. It takes one person two hours to create one of these reports. And as we know, manually building something like that does not scale. So the information to build these reports was also from multiple resources. And based on the interviews that I conducted with clients, yeah, these reports really weren't giving the clients what they wanted. Plus the design and the presentation was all over the place and it just wasn't really that visually consistent. So I asked myself, what methods can I use to investigate how to build a better report for our clients? And that's when I decided not only to conduct some UX research, but to use service design to help me discover opportunities. So the first thing I did was come up with a plan of attack, which was my research plan. I wanted to conduct a heuristic evaluation, which is looking at the report to see what design and usability problems the report might have. And you can do a heuristic evaluation on non-digital or non-interface uh, things as well. 
So then I had to do the get the customer's point of view. So part of the problem with this report is that they were building these reports and without ever asking the customer what they needed in the reports. Ooh, that's a big no-no. We want to meet customers' needs and have a user-centered approach to problem solving, right? So I interviewed some customers to better understand what they wanted and needed from these reports. Then I needed to figure out how these reports were actually put together. And I used the classic anthropology method of contextual inquiry, sometimes called ethnographic observation, sometimes called side-by-sides. And then after this, I decided I was going to use a service design blueprint with a little bit of a twist. To do, I was going to do a deep dive examination of how the reports were put together. And finally, through research, I knew I would likely discover gaps and opportunities that would lead to my recommendations for improvement. And this was my overall research plan. And so now I want to take a deeper look into each step I did for conducting UX research and building out a service design blueprint to help with enterprise systems. So in this example, remember, service design is the process of improving an employee's experience and then indirectly improving a customer's experience. So in order to satisfy the customer, I had to take a multi-method approach to better understand the problem I was trying to solve, which was better reports for customers. First, I had to understand the report itself, heuristic evaluation. Second, I need to know how the report was built, contextual inquiry. And then third, I needed to know what customers wanted and needed from this report. And that was user interviews. And finally, bringing all this knowledge together to come up with recommendations to build better, better reports would hopefully lead to happier customers. So I first had to understand what was going on these, in these reports, like what's inside. And I started with a heuristic evaluation. And I know that there are a lot of great heuristic frameworks out there, like Niels Norman's 10 usability frameworks and Abby Covert's information architecture heuristics. But I was just doing like a quick and dirty evaluation, basically to answer what was going on in these reports and question the status quo. So I was looking for inconsistencies, confusing items, design flaws, et cetera. And I'm gonna be honest, these developers, the people in the security operations center that um, they're really technical sometimes. And they were the ones that were building the reports. And they may not be the most empathetic designers. Subject matter experts, oh yes. Communicating things in a simple and easy way not so much. <laughs> so I had to look at these reports to see if a dumb person like myself could understand what was going on. And guess what the verdict was? I could not. Okay, so let's talk about some of these graphics that were in these reports. Are you ready? Let's start with the top left here, the one that starts with top alert categories. Ooh, these 3D charts are certainly fancy, huh? Well, there's some problems here. The 3D, like the top of the boxes are so far from the scale, it's really difficult to see what these numbers even mean. And 
I know that in this example, the black boxes are shorter than the red boxes in the back, but if they were bigger, then you wouldn't be able to see the red boxes tucked back there in the back. So it's not very helpful. Sure, it's fancy, but it's not very practical. Now let's look at the top right, that lovely gray and white table. So this table shows IP addresses and device names. And you really have to know what your, all your devices are called. No one's gonna know from an IP address. But the real problem is it just shows the status quo. It's not really useful. They wanna know what the problems are with their devices. And if there is a problem, what is the problem and what to do about it? So this chart was really useless according to our clients. Now let's go down to the bottom left, this orange chart. So this shows how many emails our SOC company sent to the client per month. The number of emails we sent to clients, who cares? I can tell you clients don't care. They don't wanna know the number of emails that we sent them. They wanna know the content or the reasons for those emails. What were the problems? Were there any trends or any themes? And then finally, the bottom right, this blue chart, mm, this is my favorite. <laughs> this chart shows how long it took for us to close or resolve a ticket. So the x-axis going up and down is the number of incidents or tickets, and it comes in half increments. Well, I can assure you, you can't have one and a half tickets. You either have a ticket or you don't have a ticket. They don't come in halves. And then that bottom uh, along the x-axis is time. And the maximum number shown here is 28,619 seconds. Seconds. <laughs> Let's translate that into something that might be a little bit more useful. 28,619 seconds is about 477 minutes and it's about eight hours. No one wants to have to translate from seconds into a number that makes a little bit more sense. Not super cool. So based on my heuristic valuation and later from the interviews that I conducted with customers who review these charts, I found all kinds of goodies that needed to be fixing. So then I talked to customers and they're the ones who received the reports. And through one-on-one -on -one interviews, I asked them, what do you need? And I learned that these reports simply are not delivering what the client needs. They told me about how they needed actionable items to take back to their boss. One person told me, if we are in trouble, don't just tell me there is a problem. I want to know what to do about it. They want the reports to be reflective of industry trends or concerns. Are there things happening out there in the world right now? Are there current problems that I should be aware of and keeping an eye out for? So our users, they want context and interpretation. Again, don't just tell them what the problem is, tell them why it is happening. And they also wanted it to be personalized. So there are some sections of these reports that have some very generic security related news articles that they pulled off the internet. And they didn't care, that had zero information that was helpful for them had nothing to do with their company or their industry. And the people I talked to were like, yeah, I don't like those at all. <laughs> they don't find it useful. Okay, 
So now I have a better understanding of what the users or the clients want. But remember, the original ask for my company was to streamline and automate this report making process. And in order to do that, I have to understand how these suckers are made. And that's when I decided to conduct a contextual inquiry. Basically, that is sitting with someone and observing them and asking questions as they go through their tasks. Sometimes it's called side-by-sides. It's similar to ethnographic observations. And I sat with the person who built most of the report. His nickname was Bro Sales. So I'm gonna call him Bro Sales. And he walked me through every step of the process and he answered all of my questions. And you know, I really love this method of a contextual inquiry or observing people because sometimes you get to observe people doing things they don't even realize that they're doing. Trust me, people do things and their actions can be so routine, they don't even know that they're doing them. But if you observe them doing these things, you can notice these actions that they might not tell you about. Plus you get to see their cheat sheets, their hacks, their workarounds and how they are guided through, those things help guide them through their work. Also, you can ask questions along the way. Why are you doing that? What system are you using there? How does that information help you to do things? You can ask all the questions. And what I learned through observation is that it surfaced where the process was very manual and therefore could introduce human error. It helps you to understand the user flow, how long it takes to do something, what software, what websites, what other enterprise systems are they working in? And while I sat with bro sales and, and watched him build reports, I could have him like take screenshots, answer my questions, do things over and over so I understood all the steps. And having this information would later help me build out that service design blueprint. So the first thing I noticed in my contextual inquiries that there are so many systems involved to build out this report. Multiple websites, other enterprise software, touch points, Ooh, not to mention all the calculations and the scripts they have to run to help them determine the data that goes into those reports. It is a lot. And poor bro sales, he didn't even realize that he was using so many systems. Again, this is the real value of sitting with someone and watching them do their work. You see them do things that they are barely aware that they're doing themselves. So after seeing all of these systems, I realized that automating these reports eh, gonna be a real challenge. So after my observations, I went back to my desk and roughly mapped out the steps of the process. Now I only had this like little whiteboard, I swear it was like this, like maybe this big. And so it's pretty limited space. And I just mapped out the high level steps and the systems that were involved so I could quickly get my ideas like out on paper. And I love using a whiteboard like this because it's easy to edit and modify if you need to. And this rough draft acted as a reference point for when I would map out my service design blueprint. So let's talk about that service design blueprint. Like I said, I only have that little whiteboard, not very big. And I was gonna be able to capture everything um, that I needed to on that small surface. So I went big. 
And when I say I went big, I mean it. My service design blueprint wrapped around five cubicles in the office. I used like those big post-it note flip, flip charts and applied little post-it notes and screenshots. And you know what? Going big like this had some advantages. It provided some visibility into the process. Now, everyone could see what that researcher, that UX designer and researcher had been up to all this time. <laughs> it also gave me an opportunity to review this with bro sales to make sure that I had the flow accurate. I could confirm that uh, all the steps were captured. It really brought all the jumps and the steps and the different systems involved. And it was really an opportunity to start talking about how we could improve this process. And having a large format like this was like completely unheard of in, in this office space like this before. And it brought others into the conversation and actually kind of created some excitement. So remember that service design blueprint that I showed you earlier? Again, the gold boxes as each across the top are the steps in the customer's journey. And then you deep dive into each step across these swim lanes. And a traditional uh, Service design blueprint has customer actions, touch points, staff actions, and then it has below the line of visibility where the user never sees what's happening. It's kind of behind the scenes. So for this project, I took a little bit of a different approach. And that's the beauty of the service design flame, uh, framework is it's flexible and it could be adjusted. So let's walk through a non-enterprise example of where we might use a service design blueprint model. Let's say we're designing a theme park. How fun would that be, huh? And you wanna create the best experience possible. Well, you can modify uh, the touch points and the swim lanes on the service design blueprint. And you can even do this, do this examination through a persona. So let's do that now. Let's talk about the persona. So let's say it is a group of people who has an elderly family member with some mobility issues. Maybe they don't ride all the rides. Maybe they need more frequent breaks. Maybe they have different needs, like they need accommodations for wheelchairs or special dietary needs. And so what would that theme park experience be for that persona? So for this example, the theme park, the land is sci-fi land. And I have modified the swim lanes a bit for this service design blueprint to examine things that are important to what we want to discuss as a group, as the UX team. So the customer touch point is the same. It's the area of the theme park that they could visit. So there's different things here. There's rides, there's the restroom, there's gift shop, there's restaurants. And then the orange, kind of orange red swim lane is the services that we could provide at that touch point. And the blue, the cyan level is the employee interactions that could take place at that touch point. The purple swim lane are the pros or the positive or the good things that could be part of that touch point. And the green swim lane are the negative or not so great things that could be part of that touch point. And then finally, the pink one could be what us as a team could brainstorm 
for better opportunities by having a how might we exercise. And so what we would need to do next is to think about what the persona's uh, experience would be at these touch points. And so for the sake of time, I'm gonna only walk through one touch point. And again, the persona is an elder, elderly person with mobility issues. And the single touch point I'm gonna talk a little bit about is the extraterrestrial burger stand. So that is a restaurant in the sci-fi land. So let's talk about this restaurant. What are some of the services that we could provide specifically for this persona? Well, one thing that we could do is provide large print menus. Maybe they forgot their glasses at home. We could also offer low glycemic foods if they need to eat foods that are complementary to regulating blood sugar levels. For the employee interaction, maybe we have an employee who is trained in CPR in case someone has a heart attack. Maybe we have an employee who has large physical strength and can actually pick somebody up if they have fallen. Some of the pros or positive things that we could offer at this touch point is air con, air conditioning, right? A lot of times we're visiting a theme park in the summer, it's pretty hot. Providing some air conditioning would be a good place to provide somebody who needs relief from the heat. We could also provide free water. Maybe they have to take medication throughout the day and not let's not charge them $4 for a bottle of water. Let's offer it for free. And maybe some seating uh, that isn't required for dining in. Like we said, this persona might need to take frequent breaks. So to offer seating for them and their family could be another good offering here. Now, let's talk about the flip side a little bit and talk about some of the negative aspects that could happen at this touch point. Well, you know those tall seats that you, they're call, often called bar seats that you kind of have to sit up in, like they're pretty high. Seats like that could be very difficult for someone with mobility issues to climb up into. And like we mentioned, this person might have some mobility issues and need to potentially push a wheelchair through aisles. So having aisles too close together could be a challenge for them as well. So then us as a team could brainstorm, how might we better still make this good experience for this touch point, which is the extraterrestrial burger stand, and for the persona of an elderly person with mobility uh, issues. So again, I wanna emphasize that when it comes to a service design blueprint, I think it's okay to modify the swim lanes or the rows or the topics you'd like to do a deeper dive, it's okay to modify those to examine the things that are important to the problem you're trying to solve. So for my theme park example, it wasn't important to explore the backstage aspects of this attraction. We wanted to focus on that customer experience more. So that's what was important for us to focus on. And that's what I like about a service design blueprint is you can modify it again, to your needs, which is exactly what I did when it comes to the service design blueprint I created for that report building process. So let's switch back to that and talk about that report and the service design blueprint that came out of that. So let's look at the swim lanes. The yellow ones here at the top are the actions. These are the steps 
in the report building process. The orange are my observations, not exactly the, the exact step, but some things I noticed along the way, like if a process was a little more manual or if they used a cheat sheet to help them. And the pink ones were my notes, my comments. I call them my editorial comments. This is where I was starting to surface uh, opportunities for improvement, things I, things I noticed but wanted to make a comment on that weren't truly the actions, but things I wanted to point out like, oh, he made an error and this is why I think this could be a problem. So that is what the pink stickies represented. And then I also had screenshots so that people could see the, um, what exactly the screen looked like at the step that Brussels was building this report. And then finally, I'm not sure if you can see it, but there's some little tiny colored blocks on some of the stickies. And what those represent is the system that was involved, the technology that was being used in that step. So once I got this all mapped out, remember it wrapped around five cubicles. Um, it was time to review with the team. So I first, I showed bro sales and he confirmed that the flow was accurate. Well, mapping it out like this really brings out the jumps and the steps involved. And notice that it's still not high resolution at all, which was a good thing because I did mess up a couple things. Some of the steps I had out of order, a couple things I had missed. And it's really easier to fix in these um, rough areas like this. Now, I did not have a digital whiteboard at this company, but that would be a great um, tool to use for this as well. And also having it in these, um, this low format and large format is I could start having some conversations with the developers. They were potentially going to be the one to automate or fix this report building process. So we needed to start having some conversations around this. They need to understand what the process looked like, what systems were involved, surface those gaps and opportunities for improvement. And so they could start thinking about what technical improvements they might be able to make at these different steps. And finally, this was the first time that managers ever had any visibility into this process. And it was really critical for them to understand the complexity involved in making this report. If they had not seen how many steps were actually involved, uh, they probably would still think this would be really simple to automate. Well, once they saw how complicated this process was, they had to put a, a hold on automating this report. It simply was not not an option anymore once they realized how complicated it was. So once um, the process and the stickies were all firm, everything's accurate, uh, then I went a bit higher resolution and put the data in the spreadsheet. And I know what you're probably thinking, oh, Jen, you could have made the digital version that was so cool, interactive, knocked their socks off, really fancy. Yeah. I could have done that, <laughs> but I decided to make this spreadsheet meet the team where they are. I made it a spreadsheet because that is what the stakeholders and the team are comfortable working in. They like Excel, Google Docs. I know they're not pretty, but they're functional and the file size is really small and it's easy to share. Form follows function, my dear friends. 
And I just want to note here quickly, uh, the colors here corresponded to the colors that were on that paper analog version. And so it was pretty simple to translate uh, what they'd seen on paper to this digital format. And yeah, it was hard, a little heartbreaking to take down that fantastic work of art that wrapped around five cubicles in the office. But the digital version is much more access accessible because anyone can open it up at their computer. Plus, it kept them from bugging me every five minutes, walking up and, oh, what's here? What's on this? You know, pointing out at that paper spread or the paper version. So it really worked out better. <laughs> so I want to revisit my plan of attack or my research plan and talk about how the different research efforts I conducted helped the team come to a decision. The heuristic evaluation, again, look at the report to see what design, usability problems the report had, question the status quo. And then I uncovered customer needs through one-on-one -on -one interviews. I conducted a contextual inquiry with bro sales to observe how he built the report and ask him questions along the way. And that helped me to understand simply how the reports were built. And finally, with the data collected along the way, I laid it out in a modified service design blueprint. And through the research, I discovered the gaps and opportunities that would lead to recommendations for improvement. So as you can see, this mixed method research approach can be a terrific way to ultimately construct a service design blueprint. So I think the beauty of a service design blueprint is that you get that holistic view of the process and it surfaces those gaps and opportunities. It showed, when I created this service design blueprint, it showed the challenges of automation. It was not gonna be as easy as flipping a switch. It also, get this, it also included the cross-functional team that had never worked together or been united in a process before. This organization was super siloed and segregated. So the people in the SOC, the security, where the security analysts worked and the ones who put the reports together, they were literally behind a locked door that you needed special badge access. I had that, but the developers who I worked with who sat upstairs, they did not have access to the SOC. They did not have access to half of the team that they should be working with. Well, I can assure you that ended as soon as I found out about that. <laughs> and I started to get both teams because they're both very smart and they should be working collectively together. And so I got both of the teams to start working together. And I think in the end, the biggest win for me, I mean, that was a huge one, but another big win for me was transparency. It's transparency into this process that I think only a service design blueprint can surface like almost nothing else can. So I think the question then is, is this something that you could do? And I would say, hell yes. <laughs> it is very insightful to go through uh, this process and go through the steps and take a deep dive into each step. It's amazing what you will learn if you go through the process of filling out a service design blueprint. It's amazing. You can do this solo by yourself like I did because I was the only UX pro in the company. So I did this alone 
or you can have multiple people working on the service design blueprint at the same time. And I think that is a huge plus because bringing in collaborators is a great way to bring in others and have them own it with you. You could bring in developers, users, customers, product owners. The more perspectives you have, the better it will be at exploring all the angles of the problem. Also, you don't need any special tools to do this. You saw I had flip charts, stickies, you can use a whiteboard, you could use a digital whiteboard like Mural. I did not have access to that back then, but that would be a great tool to use as well. You could use design software. You could do this in FigJam or Sketch. Anything that you feel comfortable working in, Excel spreadsheet like I did, use the tools that you're comfortable with. Also, you don't need to have tech expertise. And when I say that, what I mean is you don't need to have all the knowledge about these systems that you're talking about or learning about. You don't have to be a developer to build out a service design blueprint. Believe me, I knew nothing about the systems that Bro Sales was using, but he explained enough for me to understand what he was doing and to get the understanding like of the function and the use. And he explained, and that was enough. Really, it was enough. And for this, not only did I talk to customers, but I also talked to security experts that worked for the company so that I could weigh the information that they felt the customer also needed to know. And it's a good, it was a good balance to get both perspectives because I think that there was some value in the information that we were presenting to some our customers, but the customers didn't interpret it that way. So there were some opportunities for some content alignment or uh, aligning some of those mental models of what's important information for both sides. And then finally, uncovering some, some low-hanging fruit is a great way to recommend improvements and help reduce, like you could help reduce time on task, reduce complexity, and suggest some better processes. So I would say, yes, folks, you too can build a service design blueprint. Ooh, okay. I know that was a lot. <laughs> But hopefully you can see the value of applying different research methods and how creating a service design blueprint can be used for something that maybe you're working on. My major takeaway for you today is that it's okay to modify and evolve the traditional service design blueprint template to meet your needs. It's like with all of UX, right? We always say, ah, nothing's set in stone. It depends, right? We say that a lot. So please feel free to adapt this excellent tool for your next UX design or research needs. Thank you very much.